Well, we have a wonderful opportunity again to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And before I do that, I do want to encourage you to stick around for the second service uh, as this morning's service is going to be about love and finding out how we can love one another, how we can love the people in our community is huge, um, especially to the kids who are not, not taken care of and, and are lost in this world. And also stick around to talk to Mike after this first service so that you may learn more about what does it mean to be involved in the ministry of family table. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to be in verse 4 through 7. Let's read this together. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for your grace in leading us and guiding us through your word. And we know, Lord, that your word is truth and we can trust in it, even though at times we would struggle with that trust. But we know that at the end of the day, when we do choose to trust in your word and choose to live by your word and choose to see Christ in your word, that we are benefited from it. We pray, Father, that you would lead us and guide us now. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us to know your word and to be transformed by it. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What would you endure for love? There is a famous poem written by Rose Hartwick Thrope. Uh, it's a poem named, The Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight. And the poem details the story of a woman who is in love with a young man named Underhill. Vessel Underwood, actually. And this man is a man who was working for King Charles I. King Charles I was the enemy of Oliver Cromwell during the English Civil War back in the 1700s. This man was caught by Oliver Cromwell, who was the parliamentary commander of that day, and he was sentenced to death by Oliver Cromwell. Bessie, who is the woman who is in love with Bessel Underwood, begged Oliver Cromwell that he would live, that he would not be executed for being a spy. However, Cromwell was adamant that this man will be executed at the sound of the curfew bell. So Betsy, who is in love with this man, decided to ask the sexton, who is the man who rings the curfew bell, to not to ring the curfew bell. But the sexton said very clearly that the curfew bell has been run faithfully for 100 years, and it will be run tonight. Left with no choice, Betsy went up to the tower of this bell, and she threw herself up around the clapper of the bell, which is the metal portion inside the bell. It's a huge bell, so her whole body was inside this bell, and as the bell rung, as the sexton pulled on this bell, and this bell was swinging in midair, her body was swinging with it, banging inside on that bell. However, there was no noise because her body took the impact. As a result, there was no curfew bell that night, at least no sound of it. When Oliver Cromwell heard that there was no curfew bell and she saw the bruise and the battered body of Betsy, he was moved by her action and said to her, Go, be with your lover. The curfew bell shall not ring tonight. 
It's a wonderful, wonderful story about love because it's a story about sacrifice. One would sacrifice oneself for the sake of love. And this is how we would interpret love to be. We could certainly just talk about love and say, I love so-and-so and I feel so-and-so about this situation or feel so-and-so about this person. But ultimately, love is an action. Love is a sacrifice. It's not just something that we talk about, but something that which we do. In fact, this is how God loves us as well. In the very beginning, we were loved by God in this way. Actually, through salvation, we were loved by God in this way. Perhaps one of the most famous phrases regarding God's love is found in John 3.16, which says, For so God loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes unto him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the love which God has displayed to us in the giving of his Son. So how was the Son given to us, and how is this a sacrifice? Well, in order for us to understand how this is a sacrifice, we must understand the story of this love which started in the very beginning. In the very beginning, God created us. God made us to be like him. He made us in his image. We're made to be as holy as he is holy. However, we sin against him. This is the reality of our world today. If you are in this world today, you will see that there is sin in this world. All kinds of sins. There are hurtful words and hurtful action which you experience, which you might have done to others. This is what makes this world sad and what is breaking this world apart. This is not how God created this world. In fact, the way the, way the world is right now, we would be judged by the Lord. We would be judged by God because God is the holy and the righteous God. However, God did love. He did love us in this way in which he sacrificed himself for us. Jesus, who is God, came to earth and lived a perfect life. But that perfect life isn't lived for his own sake. That life was lived for us because he's already perfect. But he lived that perfect life so that he can give that perfect, righteous life to you and to me, so that we may be righteous before God. It was exchange for our unrighteous life for his perfect life. Then he died on the cross and paid for the punishment that was ours for our sins. We certainly couldn't pay for that punishment, but Jesus paid that punishment for us. This, again, is a sacrifice of love. And he rose again from the dead to show us that if we believe unto him, we will also rise again with him. This is love as well. As we're saved, no longer are we just simply saved and we can live by ourselves and we don't have to go to hell. God actually saves us so that we could be with him forever. We could be in his presence. We could be in a place of love with him. This is the story of love. And as we experience God's love in our lives, we are learning to love as he loves. And this is the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've gone through 11 attributes of love so far. There is patience, kindness, not envying, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not self-seeking, not keeping a record of wrong, not irritable, not rejoicing with evil, but rejoicing with the truth. There are 11 attributes we've gone through with them, and all these attributes actually showcase to us who Jesus Christ ultimately is. Jesus is the one who is patient. He is the one who is kind. He is the one who is not irritable. He is the one who does not keep a record of wrong. He is all these things. And as we experience the love of God in these said ways, 
we can then let the love of God fill our hearts so that we may show the same love to others. It's a challenge to us, and yet we're here in a 12th attribute of love in the series on love, and we are here in love bears all things in verse 7. Love bears all things. So as we come to this passage in love bearing all things, we must understand first the context of this passage. 1 Corinthians is written in the context of Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, as Paul is writing to them, is a church is largely unhealthy. There are many problems this church is dealing with. The church is dealing with sexual immorality. The church is dealing with disunity. The church is dealing with the uh, misuse of the Lord's table. The church is dealing with a variety of things which will mark this church as unhealthy church. And Paul is writing to this church to call this church to holiness. And much of the reason why this church is living in an unhealthy way is because they have failed to love. They failed to love as God's called them to love. And so in Twelve. Paul talks about the service of the church, how the church is served with a healthy heart. And chapter 14, he's going to come back to it in terms of the service of the church. But then in chapter 13, he takes a digression and excursus into this phrase and poem of love. What does love mean? And how do we live out this love within the body of Christ? And love is something which we might have our own interpretation. We might say, well, I'm a loving person because I feel this way, or I do this, I do that, but all of our interpretation of love is human. We have our own interpretation of love, and it's not until we're confronted by the Word of God we found out that our own interpretation of love is actually selfishness. We don't really love, we're just selfish. We just want what we want, and we want to satisfy our own feelings instead of satisfying the requirements of God in love, and so God gives us the definitions, and we saw 11 of them so far, and there were 15 in total, and what we must understand is that every single one of these descriptions of love are not mere descriptions in noun forms, but rather every single one of the descriptions of love are descriptions of love in action. They're not nouns here. We might think of them as nouns here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 7, love is patient, love is kind, we say, oh, that's these are nouns or adjectives, but actually in the original Greek, every single one of these 15 attributes were verbs. They were all actions. And so love is that of action. And so we saw the first attribute of love. Love is patient. It's patient. It's patient because, well, God is patient toward us. We experience that kind of patience from God in terms of God not exacting vengeance upon us for us sinning against Him in the beginning of our lives before we even turn to Him. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it says, God in his divine forbearance has passed over former sins. He passed over the sins which we've done in our lives. He loved us by not exacting what we deserve, the justice we deserve for our sins, but letting us go and letting us believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ so that our sins may be forgiven. This again is the love of God in patience. And not only is God loving us in patience, God also is kind to us. Now, this kindness is not simply the kindness which we would imagine in our own minds what kindness would be. But kindness actually in the Bible is doing something good to those who would hurt you, to those who will wrong you. This definition is given to us in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, in which it says, which it says God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He's kind to those who do not appreciate him. He's kind to those who dishonor him. It's kind to those who do not know him by giving, him, giving them sunshine, giving them rain. He lets the sunshine shine on the unjust and as well as the just. He's kind to all. 
So we're called to this kindness, and certainly this is a great challenge to us already. Nevertheless, Paul does not stop here. He keeps moving on and said, love is not envy. Does not envy. It means that we do not act in a resentful way. We do not feel discontented over the fact that other people might have something that we want or is someone who we want to be because we love that person. This is evident in the very fact that we're not envious of our children. We're not envious of other people who we love because we actually want them to advance in life. We want them to grow to be all that God would have them to be. This is love. We're not envious of them. If we're not envious, then we also are not boastful. This is the fourth attribute of love. We don't want to boast in front of other people to make other people feel that they're less than what we are. We want to say to them, it's by the grace of God, I am who I am, according to 1 Corinthians 10. We are saying to them that I am what I am in the Lord, and you are who you are in the Lord. Do not envy me, but be the person God's called you to be. This would be love. Love also is not arrogant. It is not a hard attitude in which we're comparing ourselves to others and think that, you know what, I'm better than you because I am this, or I'm better than you because I have this. There is no arrogance in love because we actually love the other person to see the value that God's placed in the other person for being who they are. And also love is not rude. We do not express our arrogance with words or with action. We do not say you have no value because you're not as I am. Love is not rude and also love is not self-seeking. This is something that we saw also a few weeks back, and this is an obvious one because whenever you have children or the people you love, you're going to have to make choices. And sometimes these choices will involve you choosing to do something to benefit yourself or to do something that will benefit the other person who you love. And if you truly love the person, you would choose to benefit the person you love. You, know, you have children, you make these choices all the time. And also love is not irritable, and irritableness comes from the fact that other people might step on our way and might get in our way. We had a plan, we're going to go there in that direction. It's like someone cut off you on the freeway and you're just angry at this person. You're irritated at the fact that other people are getting in your way and you had a plan. But love is not irritable in the sense that you see the story that other people are going through. You're seeing the fact that they are perhaps struggling or perhaps they are hurting. Perhaps they are whatever it is they're going through, and that is why they're getting in your way. So instead of being about you, now it's about them. It's about them benefiting. So if you truly care about them, you would not be irritated by them. And the love also is not one who keeps record of wrongs. And again, this is what God does for us. He does not keep a record of wrongs for us or in us. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, it says this, God, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Our sins are removed from us. So many times we could just think about all the ways other people have wronged us, and we can't forget about it. We're driving on the freeway. We're driving on the road. We're walking down the street. We're just contemplating on all these things that other people have done wrong, and we're just letting our hearts grow bitter and bitter and bitter, more bitter over these incidences. Love, if you truly love the person, you are not the one who would keep those records of wrongs. We saw how we should not do that. Ultimately, it's because Jesus did not keep a record of wrong in us. He's the one who, who forgave us. He's the one who forgave the servant in Matthew chapter 18. And the servant went out and exacted vengeance upon another servant who owed him 100 denarii. And God says, if you do not forgive, 
nor will I forgive you. So if you truly appreciate the love which God has for us, and if you allow that love to fill your heart and spill over from you to other people, then you will work on this in not keeping a record of wrongs. Also, love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoice with the truth. Love does not cause you to be happy that other people are in trouble. Love does not cause you to be happy when other people are in sin as they're judged by God. In fact, love is the one attribute which causes you to want to rejoice. John the Apostle describes love vividly in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, by saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy than to hear that people are following Jesus. This is love. And finally, we're coming to the 12th attribute of love, which is what we're going to spend, well, much of our sermon on, 12, 13, and 14, and 15. The 12th being that love bears all things. Here in verse 7, love bears all things. What does it mean that love bears all things? Well, we kind of think of love bearing all things mean that love endures, but that's already in the 15th attribute. Is Paul just simply repeating himself? Is he just saying the same thing over and over again? I think there are different elements of love that he wants to bring us to, because Paul is not the one to waste his words, nor is the Holy Spirit. So the word bear actually is the word stego, which comes from the word stege, which actually means roof. In Mark chapter 2, verse 4, we see this word roof being used. It says concerning this, and this is the story of the paralytic who is dropped in front of Jesus. It says, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, that is above Jesus. So the story is that the paralytic had friends, and the friends removed the roof above Jesus so that they could drop the paralytic in front of Jesus so that Jesus can't heal this person. And it's the same word roof that is being used, this word stege. It really means to protect. See, what does roof do? Roof protects you, right? So love is like a roof over you. Love is like a covering over you. Love is one which protects you from the elements as the roof will protect you. So there's several elements in which you would see love protecting and love protects you physically. This is the obvious one. If you truly love your family, you truly love your friends, you will protect your family, your friends in a loving way that is physical. And we see a father protecting his children by working, by providing for them. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So as a father, as a head of a household, there is protection which you give to your family by working, by providing financially. There is protection in that. There's also protection of a mother to the children. We see the wonderful example of mother to the children in Proverbs chapter 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. It says, she looks well to the way of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, the husband also, and he praises her. Here's the mother who is protecting her children by waking up early. If you didn't have children, you'd probably wake up way later. 
But because you have children, right? You wake up six in the morning and you're providing the breakfast. You're making sure that they have what they need to eat throughout the day. You're making sure that the cabinets are stocked. You're going to the grocery store and, and buying all the stuff which you need for the household and so that everybody in the household has enough to use or eat. You're protecting. So there's a physical protection which we do as a result of love. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's a physical protection of giving up even your own life for your friends. But I would say also that love is not just something that is physical. If you truly love someone and protect someone physically, you will also protect the individual spiritually. And this is really what Paul is doing here to the Corinthians. To the Corinthian church, he's protecting them spiritually in the very fact that he's calling them not to sin. He's pointing out all the sins which are in their midst. He's pointing out disunity. He's pointing out sexual immorality. He's pointing out the misuse of the Lord's table. He's pointing out the fact that they have not been practicing Christian freedom the way they should. He's pointing out all these things because he loves them. It's better for them to not to sin if possible. Now, they're already in sin, but if anyone who has not sinned, we want to prevent them from sinning. This is a hard attitude of a father to the children. We've sinned. I mean, if you live long enough, you sin, but you want your children to not to sin like you did, right? Or if you have people who are of your family members who are raising up who are people who you love, say, I just want to warn you to not to do the same thing which I did. You're protecting them from sin. John said this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's far better to not to sin at all if that is a possibility in your life. But if you do sin, John continues, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. So if you do sin, then there is forgiveness. And this is the second part of the protection. Not only are you protecting them from sin, you're protecting them from the effects of sin. Namely, if you continue in the sin, you continue in the pattern of sin, there is effect, there's consequences to it. And I want to protect you from that by calling you to repentance. Believe unto Jesus, repent of your sins so that you will not endure the consequences of your sins. God oftentimes does this to us. He does not hold us to the consequences of our sins when we do repent. It's a wonderful, wonderful love of the Lord, and we're seeking for the people we love to be under the same protection. Not only so, not only protecting people from sin and effects of sin, we are also in a spiritual protection of people, protecting them from the gossip of sin. Talk about gossip of sin, the rumor that somebody else sinned. The reason why a lot of times we gossip about people and the fact that they've sinned or they've done this and done that is because we don't love them. Because in gossiping about people, we're actually not helping the individual, which is getting a power grab, which is feeling good about ourselves, which is drawing attention to ourselves, saying, that, you know what, I have special information that you don't, or let me bring some special information to you that you may not have thought of to the damage of the other person. I think about one person who gossiped in Scripture, that would be Absalom, and he did not do it from love. He did it to hurt David. See, David was at a time where he's not doing well, and perhaps to some degree, Absalom is right. David was not a good king at the moment. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has kind of left his kingdom disarray, and people are having all kinds of problems, and their, their, their issues are not being resolved, and people are coming to David, and then David was not seeing them, and Absalom is standing at the gate of the, 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 wherever the people are coming to and saying to people, hey, 
Look at me. He said in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Say, look at me. Let's, let's look at what I can do for you. Let's look at what I am. Instead of looking at David, if David truly is loved by Absalom, if Absalom truly loved David, Absalom will actually go to David and say, David, you need to shape up. You need to be a better king. You need to grow up in this. You need to take care of your people. But Absalom did not. He was simply taking advantage of the situation. And you say, well, you know what? Maybe I'm not that. I'm not one who want a power grab. I'm not one who would attract people to me and, and want people to pay attention to me. I'm not Absalom. I'm just warning other people about this person. Still not love. It still isn't love because there is no repentance in this. If the other person is not able to be confronted by you, he or she did not hear it and therefore is not able to repent. And he or she heard it from someone else that you were gossiping, that will only serve to harden the heart of the person in self defense. So again, it is not of love. And not only are you damaging yourself, and actually, you do damage yourself in the fact that if you do gossip about people, pretty soon the church figures out that you're the one who gossips. And you know what? Your reputation goes down. So gossip actually is one that is damaging, damaging both to people, to yourself, and also to your relationship with God. Because God hates gossip. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that makes haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and what? One who sows discord among brothers. That's gossip. The seventh one is the one that God wants us to focus on because it's a Hebrew poetry in which we're pointing to the seventh one as the climax. The one who discord or sows discord is the one who gossip. The one who is telling other person, hey, you should think ill of the other person because I think ill of them or I do not think well of them, so therefore I want you to be on my side and not thinking well of them as I don't think well of them. It's gossip. And this hurts the body of Christ. So how do you not gossip? How do you actually not brush the sin under the rug and say, well, you know what? Let's not talk about it, but at the same time, not gossip. Well, the only way you can do it is by carrying out the biblical conflict resolution process. You have to go to that person. You have to tell the person. That is not gossip. You tell the person and say, hey, you sinned in this way. You sinned against me in this way. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. You go to that person alone and talk to that person. And some of you did that, did that and said, well, I talked to the person, but he didn't hear me, so now I have an opportunity to gossip. No, that is not the next step. It doesn't say Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. After that, you may gossip. No. It says, if he doesn't listen to you, what do you do? Verse 16, take one or two other brothers with you and do it again. Talk to that person again. Inform this person how this person can grow in the Lord. And every step of the way, there is what? Protection. This protects you every step of the way. You're saying, you know what? I don't want everybody to know. The whole church does not need to know. I'm going to protect this person from sin. I'm going to protect this person from the effect of sin. I'm going to protect this person from the gossip of sin. 
all along the way so that this person can be brought to repentance, so that there is holiness brought to this person's life. I want this person to do well. I don't want this person to suffer. I don't want this person to, uh, to, 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 to be unneedlessly suffering for the sake of his own sin. I want him to enjoy the blessings of God. This, again, is of love because ultimately this is what Jesus had done for us. See, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. We don't pay for every single sin which we have done. We don't even suffer for every single sin which we've done. A lot of them, it just paid for. And a lot of them, God simply allowed us to not suffer for it. Are you thankful? I am. I'm thankful for all the evil thoughts I had and God didn't broadcast them to you all. I'm thankful for that because he covered it. He covered it. In the same way, we're to cover one another, protect one another in the Lord. So we see here, love covers, love bears, love protects. It's under this war, bearing all things. But then we're coming to the 13th attribute here, which is love actually believes. Love believes as well as it protects. And what does believing mean? It's the word pastoral, which really means faith. You have faith. But are you having faith in people or, or what? What does believing mean? Well, everywhere in Scripture, what we found out, believing is always directed to God. We're not called to believe in people. I mean, we believe in God. We believe in who God is. We believe in the attributes of God. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Believe in God. Believe also in me. So we're to believe in God. However, as we believe in God, as we trust in God, as we love God and believe in Him for who He is, there is a love which pours into our hearts and spills over, not necessarily in believing in people, but believing in the works of God in people. That's really what love is. I don't believe everything people says. I mean, sometimes people are lying. You in Hollywood, you know that. You don't believe everything people tell you. People, they would magnify themselves. They would exaggerate their situation all the time. But when you do believe and love in believing, you're not necessarily believing in everything they say, but you're believing in the works of God in them. There's something special about this. Because we're believing that as long as you're alive and as long as you're breathing, you have an opportunity to turn to God. You have an opportunity for repentance. And there is an element of my life in your life to support you and help you in that. Because according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we're made the image of God. So if you're made the image of God, that means that there is an opportunity for you to act as the image of God. And ultimately, the way that you could do so to the fullest extent is when you truly believe in Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you are talking to other people who don't believe in Jesus, we do believe in the sense that we're spending time with this person, we are ministering to this person, perhaps you're physically helping this person, that there is a belief somehow in that that God is working in that to bring that person to God. And there's love, right? Without love, you wouldn't do that. Without love, we wouldn't believe that. So you do believe that in love. But not only are you believing that because you want the best for the person, outside of the church, you also are believing that within the church. Within the church, we're also called to believe Believe in the works of God in us. We see this clearly in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and also verse 10. Paul says, I love, be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. 
love one another with brotherly affection. one another and the reason why we believe each other isn't necessarily because we have the same experience we're in hollywood and so oftentimes church is difficult because we have so vast so many different experiences here vast amount of differences people are different in the city people are different background people have different experiences people are different whatever and when you come together you're saying well i'm so different from this guy i don't know if i could trust this guy i don't understand where this guy is coming from but you know what you do believe not necessarily because you have the same experience, but because you have the same Holy Spirit who is at work in you. The Word, the Holy Spirit who is at work in you, is the same Holy Spirit who is at work in the other person. This is something that we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One Spirit unites us all in Christ. And so the Spirit that is calling you to be transformed in Christ and making you more and more like Jesus every day throughout your life is also at work in another person. So in that sense, you can believe. You can say, you know what? Even though this person needs a lot of growth, I believe in you. I believe God's working in you. I will work with you. I will ride with you. I will be with you. There is love in the body of Christ. As John said in John chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, actually, this words of Jesus, that you love one another as I've loved you. So we're called to love in this way, and as you are loving this way, questions arise in your mind and my mind is, am I going to be taken advantage of? This is not possible. I'm going to be taken advantage of by people, and you know what? Yeah, that's true. In fact, Jesus prepared us for it. There's no way to love and no way to follow Jesus in this world while living a life which you would not be taken advantage of. It's going to happen. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So the expectation is this. When you are doing good to other people, it's possible that they are not going to give it back to you in return. They're going to take advantage of you. That's what it means to follow Jesus. comes hand in hand with following Jesus. So you can expect it and say, you know what? I, I'm going to follow Jesus. I, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to try to escape this kind of life. It's the life that God's called me to. Another reason why you embrace this life or embrace this hard attitude of being taken advantage of is because of this. It's far better than to live a life of being suspicious of everyone. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9 says this, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. So if you walk with integrity, with people, you're going to walk securely. You're not going to be feeling like, well, I'm going to be suspicious about this person. You're not going to be feeling like, well, I'm not sure if I've done this right. Uh, maybe I should have helped. Maybe I shouldn't. You're not going to be second-guessing yourself because you have done all that you should be doing. Yeah, you're going to be taken advantage of, sure, but at least you're doing in confidence in life. So there is confidence in life in this. You're choosing to live that life, knowing that your heart is right before the Lord. Now, this does not mean that you don't have discernment. You do have discernment. Okay, we're in Hollywood. We know when people are lying. Okay, when someone comes to you and they're on drugs and saying they're not on drugs, they're on drugs. Okay, you don't want to give them a couple of dollars so they can buy more drugs. That is not wise. We're called by Jesus. According to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, be wise as serpent. Right? Be wise as serpents but we're also to be innocent as doves. 
So what does it mean, be wise as serpent? It means that we're to be discerning. Yes, even Jesus himself, according to John chapter 2, verse 24, did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in people. People would come to Jesus, they were offering Jesus the sweet words, and saying to Jesus, oh, you're this, you're that, but they're not really in love with Jesus. They simply want the miracles of Jesus, and Jesus knew this, and he did not entrust himself to them because he is wise as a serpent. He knows what is in the heart of man, and we're called to be discerning. Yes, we are. But the overwhelming heart attitude individual, especially in Jesus, is that which he believes. He believes. We see this especially in the calling of the disciples. He believed in them so much that in Matthew chapter 10, he would send them out two by twos and let them be the representatives of his, giving them authority over demons, giving them authority to heal. He believed in them. In Peter, too. He believed in Peter. Peter failed, right? Massive failure for Jesus. Denied Jesus three times in the courtyard. Was confronted by servant girls. He cowered it out. And Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I trusted you once. Second time? No way. That would be foolish on my part to trust you again. No. He believed him again. Seashore Galilee in John chapter 21 asked Peter three questions. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter answered him three times. Lord, yes, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what did Jesus do? Okay. No, what Jesus said in John chapter 21, verse 15 to 17, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You have an opportunity to do it again. I'm going to give you an opportunity to serve me. I'm going to give you tasks. I'm going to give you responsibilities. I'm going to trust you again. I'm going to believe that you can do it right again. What a privilege. You can never, ever disappoint God. God believes in you. If God believes in us, how much does it mean that we should believe as a result of God's belief in us? We're not to walk around being suspicious of people. If we're going to be a healthy church, there had to be a level in which we had to believe each other for who they say they are, not because we trust in them for their personalities or they're having similar experiences that we do, but because we trust that God is working in their lives. What God's done for us is this, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, He's given us the gospel as stewards of God. What God's done for us is this, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, He's given us a spiritual gift so that we may utilize it for the glory of God. We're to utilize all the graces of God which is entrusted to us. And if God's given that to us, how much do we not trust one another so that they may work alongside with us to utilize these gifts for the glory of God? So within the body of Christ, we believe. Even to those who do not believe in God, we believe. So there is belief in love as well as protection in love, bearing in love, but the third attribute, which we study here, and is really the 14th of the 15 attributes, love actually hopes. Love hopes all things. What does it mean when love hopes? Well, everywhere we think about the word hope, we're thinking about hoping in a human sense. Like, I hope the restaurant has good food. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope my car gets me to the destination. I hope for all these things which are uncertain, 
But the biblical hope, the word elpizo, actually is not necessarily a hope which would designate a percentage, I hope for a certain amount of percent, this will happen. But rather, biblical hope, biblical hope is one which we hope for God, the certainty of God, the promises of God. So, for example, in Psalm chapter 62, verse 5, the psalmist says, For God alone, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. And also 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on who? Not on people, but on the living God who is our Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So we're hoping in God. That is the hope which we're called to. Biblical hope is not hoping in things of this world or even hoping in people, but we're hoping in God. However, as we love people, there is an element in which this love for God spills over to people. Not in the sense that we hope they will do certain things for us, but we hope God's work again will be done in their lives. There is a biblical hope which motivates us. I kind of think about our ministry here in First Baptist Church of Hollywood. I have no telescope to the future. I don't know if any person will get saved through the ministry. I don't know if the church will grow. Why? Because I have no telescope to the future. But I hope, not in the sense of uncertainty, but in the sense of hoping in God's work in people's lives. This is the hope that is healthy. For this hope, I get up every morning, I work hard, I see people, uh, I talk to people, I counsel people, so that people can know the Lord more and have their lives transformed to be more like Jesus. It's a wonderful hope to live by. I think about this hope demonstrated by the prodigal son's father. The prodigal son's father hoped. The prodigal son was a horrible son. Asked the father to die because he asked for the inheritance of the father, saying, give me my inheritance now. And back in those days, even in our days, if you ask for inheritance, it's basically saying, hey, I want you to die, old man. That's what you're saying. Because inheritance is given at the point of the death of whoever's above you. So die, so I'm having inheritance. That's what the prodigal son did. And father gave it to him, but the father didn't lose hope. We see this in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, when the prodigal son decided to come back the father was waiting for him. It says this, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I mean, this action can only be done if the father had been expecting it. The father saw the son from far away upon that yonder hill and saw him walking toward him, didn't wait for the son to get to the doorsteps, but instead ran to him. And Middle Eastern men do not run. It was a sig signifying, or it's a signal of the man was not dignified. But he wasn't minding the fact that he was not dignified. He ran to his son because he had been hoping for the return, for the repentance of his son. What a great motivation to live life. I think of another motivation or another man who demonstrated this would be the man Jonathan. Jonathan worked under a man who probably did not deserve that kind of hope, under Saul. Jonathan was a good man, but he always hoped for his father's repentance. We see this clearly in his conversation with David in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16, and said, Do not fear, this is to David, for you, Saul, my father, also, oh, for do not fear, again, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, 
and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. It's like, hey, do not fear. Saul, my father, knows this. I hope that one day he'll come to the grips of understanding and carrying out what he knows to be true, that he will repent of his sins, that he will recognize that you are the rightful king of Israel, and I will be reigning next to you at that moment. Of course, we know from Scripture that never happened. Never happened. Jonathan died alongside with Saul. It was sad, but Jonathan was faithful to the end. It was not a bad motivation to live life. I mean, if he just lived life thinking that, oh, Saul was never going to repent, that would be a horrible way to serve under a leader you didn't trust. But even with the leader that he didn't trust, he had hoped for his repentance. Or to hope as a matter of our motivation in life. How would you feel in life if you cannot hope for the salvation of your loved ones? How would you hope in, how would you live in life if you cannot hope for the salvation of your father, your mother, your children, your friends who we've been praying for? We do hope. And that's the hope that gets us up to work hard, to approach them for the 51st time and share the gospel with them again and saying, hey, you know what? For 50 times I shared this with you, you rejected me, but I will share it with you again because I hope for your salvation. I think about Paul's own example of hope in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. For the Jews, he said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayers to God for them is that they may be saved. I'm praying for their salvation. I'm hoping for their salvation. I'm motivated by their salvation. Wherever I go, I preach at the synagogue first, and then they reject me, and then I go to the Gentiles because I want them to be saved. Were all of them saved? No. Did some of them get saved? Yes. But Paul himself hoped for salvation for the Jews. He was motivated by it. And for the church that he ministered to, he said this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He hoped, he hoped in the fact that others, even though they're not there yet, and we can see this all in each other, we're not there yet. You can see this in yourself. You can see this in your spouse. But you're hoping, you're hoping that they will be one day, and they will be by the grace of God. So there's hope in that love. If you truly love another person, you will hope for God's work in them. But not only is there hope, we come to the final, final attribute of love, the 15th one, love endures all things. What does it mean to endure? How do you endure all things as a matter of love? Whether the word endure is actually word hupomeno. It's two words put together. One word means to stay. The other word means under. The preposition means under, stay. To stay under is a military term. To stay under siege, to stay because you love. And perhaps this is one of the best ways to describe this word. Love endures. Sure, we can think about love enduring. Yes, that's wonderful. But what this is saying is this. Love stays. Love stays. Like, would you stay for love? Well, you should. If you love God, you will stay for God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 says this. And you will be hated, Jesus is warning them, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures or stays to the end will be saved. Will you stay in your faith for me, Jesus says. If you love me, you will. Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. But the one who stays or endures to the end will be saved. You're staying because you love God. There's a staying 
because of love. But as we love God, again, it's talking about people also, we will stay for the works of God in people's lives because you want to see God at work in them. You don't want to abandon them when things are hard. You're going to stay to see them flourish. We see Paul doing so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and 27, in which he determined to stay even though he was in trials. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Could have ended all if he didn't care for God's church. Could have stayed in his own home, didn't have to be about the way that he is, but he is because within him is a burden for all the churches. He loved them. So he stayed for them. He stayed in trials for them. So love is the one who stays. One of the beautiful illustrations in the Old Testament regarding staying for love is that of Jacob to Rachel. Remember that story? How long did Jacob stay for Rachel? 14 years. Seven years for Leah. Didn't want Leah, but seven more years for Rachel. And it's a worldly illustration of love, and yet that worldly illustration of love is only a shadow of Christ's love for us. The fact that Jesus Christ stayed for us. I kind of think about that story in Gethsemane where the soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. And Peter took out a sword and started slashing around and, and cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus said to him, hold on for a sec. Do you think that I need you? Do you think I need you? He said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Like, literally, I can put a stop to this at this moment. I don't need you. The reason why I am here is because I chose to stay. Chose to stay. I chose to stay so that they could arrest me. I chose to stay so that they could put me on the cross. Even on the cross, He could have gotten down. But he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He stayed for us because he loved us. So these are the attributes of love. And with these, we finish all 15. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. Right? It's not one who keeps record of wrong, does not rejoice in evil, but rejoice with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, 15 of them. But with this, we must understand it could be a burden to us. We may look at this and say, well, I'm not this. And you're right, you're not this. Certainly, this is a passage to challenge us to be this. But ultimately, what this is, is to challenge us to look at Jesus, who is this. We're to first worship Christ. He is patient to us. He is kind to us. He is not one who is sinfully envious of us. He is not one who is keep a record of wrong. He's not one who's irritable. He's not one who's boastful. He's not one who's arrogant. He's not one who's rude. He's not one who's irritable. He's not one who's self-seeking. He's not any of those things. And when we experience this love from Jesus, 
then we can begin to love others in the same way. We should not ever approach this as a moralistic checklist and say, well, you know what, I'm these things. And we should examine ourselves, but it's not a checklist for us. We should look to Jesus first. And as we look to Jesus, the love of God will be poured into our hearts. As Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And when God's heart pours into your heart, then it begins to spill over to the people who are around you. And then at that moment, you can begin to examine yourself. And it is not an easy examination. It's like hugging a pin-filled cushion, right? Cushion looks beautiful, and sometimes we have these quotes and these uh, wallpapers that we hang on the wall and love is this and love is that. It's like, wow, what a beautiful poem. But when you actually study it, it's challenging. So today, the question is, after you have examined the love of Christ, which is for you, and worshiped him in that, would you examine yourself next and say, your name, is your name patient? Is your name, put your name there in place of love, is your name kind? Is your name not envious? Is your name not boastful? Is your name not arrogant? Is your name not rude? Is your name not self-seeking? Is your name not irritable? Is your name does not keep a record of wrong? Is your name does not rejoice with evil, but rejoice with the truth? Is your name bearing all things? Is your name believing all things? Is your name hoping all things? Is your name enduring all things? It should be. It should be. But ultimately, we know Jesus is. I think of a wonderful story of this hymn, More Love to Thee, More Love to Thee, written by Elizabeth Prentice, who lived in the 1800s. She wrote this song, More Love to Thee, after both of her children died. And she felt comforted and loved by God so that she wanted to express more love to God in return. It's unimaginable that we would experience the love of God after a tragedy. However, as the Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts in such a way, we know that is a reality of a Christian experience. And when we experience that love, then we begin to express that love to others. The song says, Once earthly joy I craved, saw peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee, more love to thee. May this be our prayer as well as we come to the end of this chapter or this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's pray.